Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today we have someone who is a school choice warrior, someone who is fighting on the front lines each and every day to for, for, for students, you know, for parents, to empower them to do what's going to be best for their kids instead of the bureaucrats and everything else. And it's not other than Randon Steinhauser. Randon, welcome to the Life Fuel Prosper Show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on. And um, I know you've been doing some great work, not only here in Texas, uh, where, where you live, but across the nation. And you've been working on this for so long. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. So for the audience, I want to kind of go through your background um, and then we could jump right into it. So Randon Steinhauser is the founding partner of Steinhauser Strategies, uh, which she launched in 2013 after relocating to Austin from Washington. D.C. Brandon specializes in issue advocacy, nonprofit, and corporate communications. Brandon's career uh, began in the governor's office in South Carolina. In 2009, she joined the staff for U.S. Senator Jim DeMint in Washington, D.C., and later transitioned to the nonprofit world, working in foreign policy and education reform for former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She has worked in more than 30 states on issues for advocacy and political campaigns. Brandon assists clients with media relations, coalition development, strategic communications, and government affairs. Originally from South Carolina. Randon is a graduate of the University of South Carolina. She attended the Women's Campaign School at Yale University and received her master's recently in communications from Johns Hopkins University. She's the proud mother of four, including a set of identical twins. Brandon, it's a pleasure to have you on the Let People Prosper show. And the first thing I like to ask guests is, what motivates you to do what you do each and every day? Yeah, I appreciate it so much. Um, you know, I think that answer has really evolved over time. Honestly, I got involved in politics during college because I cared about the ideas of free people, free markets, and free ideas. So that philosophy really laid the groundwork for me to work in the governor's office, move to Washington, D.C., again, working on the ideas that I care about. So um, that led me into education reform. And I can talk about that during our conversation. But today, the answer is much different. Because as you mentioned, I am the mother of four, and I just see the value of educational freedom, specifically when it comes to every child learning differently. I do have identical twins. They are very different in the way they learn, very different in the way they problem solve and communicate. And so for me, this mission of educational freedom is really about letting children prosper, letting children thrive in an environment that celebrates knowledge and truth and beauty and goodness in our education conversation around children. And so that's kind of what's led me to continue this fight years later. Uh, that's awesome. And and we were just talking before we went on and started the recording. I've got three kids. Um, you've got four. And, and, and so mine are eight and younger. I think yours are six and a half and younger. So this is going to influence their lives. I mean, each and every day we see that. And I, I feel the same way. Each one of them have their unique benefits or unique things that they're going to do. They learn differently. Um, there's so many things that are different about them. You know, whenever you're talking to folks across the nation about school choice and everything else. How has that, you know, the, the overall opportunity and the actions of being a mom really influenced your thinking? Yeah. 10 years ago, when I first started working on school choice, predominantly, I would have to go into communities and I was doing grassroots organizing of parents. And at the time, I obviously, I wasn't a parent yet. And so I would start with just school choice 101, why you should have that freedom. And I'll tell you what, it was because of COVID that many parents came to the conclusion themselves that this system is broken. This one size fits all monopoly program that we send our kids to every single day, we are not seeing the outcomes. We continue to send our tax dollars into a system that is failing our kids. And so, you know, I would say these days I'm much more excited about the 
organic grassroots growth that we are seeing across the country. It's happening right across the country. We're seeing universal education savings accounts pass. And like I said, a few years ago, you know, just having to explain to people why you should have this inherent freedom, no longer is that the case. I feel like parents now understand more than ever that government-run education is not the best solution for their child. Yeah, no, amen, amen. And, and I think that with that now, with being a mom, uh, you said it four earlier, that's contributed to some of those benefits that you've seen. And, and over time, there just seems to be that the conversation has certainly changed of school choice just from a decade ago to now. I think the pandemic did a lot of that. One of my favorite economists is Milton Friedman, right? And Milton Friedman talked a lot about vouchers and, and the, the role the government should have in breaking up the monopoly that is ed public education or government-run schools, however you want to call it. And, you know, that discussion about vouchers, which was basically, you know, take a check from one institution to another institution, had did not play out very well. Vouchers is really a bad word <laughs> in many realms these days. And and that has changed. What do you think are some of some of the dynamics of why that happened compared to maybe education savings accounts as being the better uh, path today? Yeah, you know, I think vouchers are only demonized by those who oppose the idea of educational freedom. So it's been turned into a bad word by the bureaucrats and the special interest groups. But at the end of the day, vouchers were the first opportunity for many families to take those tax dollars and send their child to a school that better meets their needs. We've come a long way. As you mentioned, it's no longer just vouchers as the preferred model of educational freedom. What we're seeing across the country is education savings accounts taking hold and, and moving like wildfire. And here's why. No longer do we have to look at education as a one way of doing things. It does not have to be a child sitting in a classroom with 25 other students and the teacher at the front with the chalkboard. There is innovation in education more than ever. Our students are learning online. They're learning in co-ops. They're learning in micro schools. They're learning in a variety of different settings all throughout each week. In those states where we have universal school choice, we are seeing a proliferation of market responses by education entrepreneurs, many of whom are either parents or educators themselves who left the system saying, I love teaching kids, but this is the backwards way of doing it. I want to be able to meet their needs in a creative, fluid environment where, you know, if they want to sit on the floor, if we want to go outside, if we want to just end lessons at 2 p.m. and then the rest of the day have free time so that they can really spark that love of learning and it's not forced on them. That's what we're seeing. And to me, that is one of the most exciting things about education freedom. It's not just moving the government out of the way. That's step one. What happens when you get big government out of the way is that the market responds with innovative, exciting ideas and exciting ways for kids to be educated so that they have that passion for learning and hopefully become lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it works out well, too, because individuals are the best determinant of what their future is going to be. So they're going to educate themselves. The parents, in this case, are helping out their kids. And and for me and my wife, you know, private school has been the best um, for our for our boys, um, our daughter later on, uh, she's still too young. She's 10 months old. But I know that you've had some with your own girls. I don't know. You share what you want. But I think that it's also been fun to watch. You know, we've been friends for a while now. And I think what I've learned from you is you've 
been able to grasp different things that have worked best for your girls. And so I don't know what else, what you could um, explain, expand on some of those things. Yeah. I like to joke that we are living an ESA lifestyle, even without the ESA. So for our family, again, we've got four kiddos ages six and a half and under, and we do a variety of different things. So two days a week, they're at a private Christian collaborative school. It's a university model school where the students are on campus a few days a week and at home the other days. Two days a week, we have full at-home school days. Again, my kids are young enough where that really only means about two hours throughout the day of intentional hands-on learning versus free play activities, games, puzzles, read-alouds, all of those things in the elementary years that we know are so important. We also, I started a co-op last August. Uh, the goal was to have about 12 kiddos. We now have 40 children that gather just about every Friday, and we have a nature inspired learning environment. So we meet outdoors each week. There's a different theme. Um, we've also hired out private tutoring. When our uh, oldest was getting ready for first grade, we wanted to make sure she was where she needed to be for reading. So we hired a private literacy tutor who came in twice a week. And so again, we have, you know, I've really leaned into what I'm advocating for, right? Like, I want my children to have those same opportunities that I'm seeing happening across the country. And I do hope that in Texas, we can pass an education savings account because I see the beauty of it. I see the benefits of allowing children to thrive in environments that are designed around the children, not designed as a jobs protection program. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things that's, that's talked about a lot, one of our other friends, uh, Corey DeAngelis, um, you know, fun students, not systems. It, it, it's so important. It's, it's short. Maybe it sounds trendy, but it, but it really is important there because right now what we're doing is we're, we're systematically funding through our tax dollars, whether it be property taxes, some sales taxes, or whatever the case may be, we're funding these government-run schools. And I think that there's been some discussion about whether or not to call them public schools. That's commonly referred to as a public school. But in, in economics, we have what's called public goods, right? Those public goods are going to be those that are non-rivalrous, non-excludable, non and that sort of thing. And in public schools, these government-run schools are rival. They're, they're non-rivalrous already. Like, they're not a public good. And if you look at the benefits of what they're supposed to provide, like a public good would, where there's positive benefits to those, not just those that are in the school themselves, but to the community, we're not getting that same benefit for outcomes and things of that nature. And so whenever you've looked at some of this research, whether it's in Texas or across the nation, what have you seen with some of the outcomes after we put in so many billions of dollars into this government-run education system? Yeah, you know, I do call them government-run systems and government-run schools because I think it's important for parents to make that connection, that these are government employees, that their incentive is to just show up and get the paycheck. That's not to say there are not amazing teachers, but I hear from those amazing teachers. They're as fed up as most of us. I was just at the PTA rally here in Austin this morning, and actually I was surprised when I started talking about school choice, the teachers who were attending were supportive. It's just the union bosses and the superintendents who don't want that competition. So the other thing I'll say about government-run schools, and this is really important as it relates to our values, our values are being undermined by a government-run system that does not value the family, the role of the parents, or our faith. And so Again, we're seeing more and more uh, revealed and transparency from teachers or students sharing things online that are being taught in their classroom. It's very, very concerning. I think a lot of parents, when they start to dig and find out what their children are learning or what they're not learning, they're very concerned. And so, again, 
With an education savings account, you, the parent, are in control of how every single dollar is spent. You can hire and you can fire every single person who is educating your child. If they're going to a private school and they're not meeting the needs of your kid, guess what? Take your dollars elsewhere. That's called incentivizing, right? You're incentivizing that school to serve the customer. And at the end of the day, the customer is the child and the parent who wants what's best for them. So I'm really excited about it. I do think the market will respond with more options. And I think that parents, when given that freedom, are going to make the right choice for their kids. Yeah. And, and I think you're so right. And we're recording this on February 27th, 2023. And th this morning I was able to go with my boys um, to a Christian school and, and they have chapel every Monday. Right. And, and you wouldn't get that at a government run school. And, and it's awesome to have that opportunity to be there with them, to see them praise and worship and everything else with, with other class, their other, their classmates um, that you just wouldn't get in a government run school to have that opportunity. I think is so important. And, and unfortunately too many people, don't have that opportunity. What I think you said earlier, which was which is spot on, is about how market, how people work to incentives. And that's another one of the key lessons in economics is that people work off incentives. That's what prices matter. And no, there's no such thing as a free lunch and opportunity costs and everything else. And in education, one of the most important things to our families and just people in general is their knowledge that they're gaining that we don't want a well-functioning market system, that we want a top-down monopoly approach that's been put in place you know, long ago, where I think there were some, some reasons for that, but it's important to have an education system. But it was really for those who, who couldn't afford any other opportunity. But now we have mechanisms in place that would allow them to have that opportunity so that we can improve their lives, th their lives over time, whether that be to go to college later on or technical school or whatever the case may be, they should be able to meet their unique needs from the time that they start school all the way to the end. And so with, with that, what other states, uh, what have the other states been doing so far that has been pushing us more into this direction of market-based, but also being able to meet the unique needs and empower parents and teachers yeah. and kids? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to that ESA. So already in this year, we've seen two states pass universal ESAs. Iowa was like within weeks of their, or days of their legislative session, right? They have a very strong governor. We see Governor Sanders in um Arkansas pushing this. We've seen a new bill in Oklahoma. Of course, we see some movement on the conversation here in Texas. Now, we haven't seen a lot of movement on a bill, and we're hoping that happens soon. But again, this is happening across the country, and I think everyone's sort of looking around and saying, who's going to be next? The other point that I'm going to make is involves funding. You know, our opposition to education freedom often comes from those people who say, well, if you just keep funding, give us more funding for our education system, outcomes will improve. My question is always, how much? How much, right? We just saw a study out of Baltimore, over $20,000 per kid per year are, is spent on public education and, and zero schools are proficient in reading. This is a problem, right? The dollars are not going into the classroom. They're not going to the students. I just did an event a couple of weeks ago with a superintendent who makes over $350,000 a year, while the teachers in his district are making $10,000 below average for the state. So there's a real disconnect between funding and funding the system and funding the student. And I think it's the perfect phrase because ultimately, when people say more money for education, what they usually think they're saying is let's improve it for our students, right? I do believe that. A lot of people believe that we just need more money, but they don't actually talk about financing. Where is the funding going? Budgeting. Show us the dollars, right? Follow the dollars. And so 
that's the beauty of education savings accounts is they're actually much more transparent. You get to see where those dollars are spent. Just a couple of years ago, there was a, a program passed in West Virginia. And I'm so proud of this state because, you know, long before that, they didn't have charter schools. They were, you know, at the bottom of every list. But now that they have education freedom, I just saw today that there are hundreds of educational providers who are entering that marketplace to provide services and support to these students who need it. And so the market does respond, you know, parents are going to be in control of those dollars. And it's not just about funding the system. It truly is about funding the student. Yep, no, that's right. And one of the things that comes to mind is Milton Friedman, again, said, don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results. And I think that's so important to, to what we're talking about here with education of, of why we do want to see the results, because you're exactly right. You'll often hear this from the educrats, the, 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 the government school sort of interest groups and bureaucrats and everything else is just we need more funding. It's just like, how much is enough? I, I said this recently on Twitter to someone and they said, well, you know, Texas, for example, um, has is, is spending on average four thousand dollars less than some of the highest. Well, the ones that have the highest, to your point earlier, aren't improving their outcomes either. Why would we want to be spending more in the process? And a lot of it doesn't end up going to the teacher. I mean, I think that good quality teachers should be paid more, just like we have a merit-based system throughout most of the market economy. But it's usually, it's set, at least in Texas, right, based on a graduated rate of payment over time, a salary schedule is what they call it. And it's, so it's not really based as much on merit. There has been some improvements with that here last few years, but it's still based a lot on what government is going to set for you. So with allowing for a market-based system, uh, which in the teaching sector is called a, um, a monopsony situation. Instead of a monopoly of one provider, you have one consumer being the government-run schools, a monopsony where about 93% of teachers are being employed by these government-run schools. You have a situation where they don't have the negotiating power. So it also allows for us to empower teachers whenever there is more supply of places for them to work in the process, whether it be private school, public school, homeschool, or co-ops or something else, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I think that when we incentivize educators to do a great job, they should be rewarded. And I absolutely believe in a meritocracy when it comes to our education uh, providers. I think that if you're doing a great job, you should be rewarded. Look, I'm going to tell you the story of the educator who came in to be our family's private tutor. She was a public school employee and she was miserable because she never got enough time in the day to take advantage of individual time with each of those 22 students that she was teaching in second grade. So instead, she left the system during COVID, started her own tutoring company, and within just a few months, tripled her salary tripled her family's income because she was able to provide a service to families who need it. And so whether it means going outside of the system and starting that kind of innovative company to serve, to serve families or recognizing, look, our government schools are not going to just completely go away, right? We know that. We want them to improve as well for our students. Education savings accounts are an opt-in program. It does not mean overnight that every single family is going to be an education savings account family. So yes, I think we also have to look at reforms within the system, but I honestly believe that the system is so broken, it's so backwards, it's so bloated that it's going to take a lot for that to change. And until the facts are put in front of people, including where the dollars are spent, I think it's going to be really difficult. Yeah, it will be. And I mean, one of the big things too, Randon, is that you have a, a large increase in the number of bureaucrats, the the the, the uh, bureaucracy, the number of administration versus teachers. This the administrative bloat, to your point, um, has really expanded, expanded quite a bit. Have you seen that across the nation? Oh, yeah, from the top all the way down. I mean, if it were up to me, we would have 
eliminate the Department of Education at the federal level because it's just not necessary, right? The federal government has no place in telling local schools, local families how to educate their kids. So start from the top, cut the bloat, start here at the state level as well, right? I mean, again, when you have superintendents making $300,000 a year, that's more than the governor of the state of Texas, right? So there's no real reason that they should be making that much money. I recognize the job can be tough, but it can't be that tough. So, you know, I would say absolutely. We see administrative staff, sometimes three, four to one when it comes to educators, and they keep crowding more students into the classroom, but yet they keep hiring more administrators. So there's a real disconnect. And again, I would just encourage folks to follow the dollars. We have a lot of families who say, you know, public school, I went to public school. It was good for me. Hey, I did too. But I look back on that system and I think it could have been different right? Like, thank goodness I had that drive and that motivation to do more. And I was curious as a kid, but for those students who maybe don't have that support level that they need, they are the ones that are going to get lost in the middle, right? Maybe they're not gifted and talented and maybe they're not the most struggling, but what about the kids in the middle? They deserve an excellent education too. And so um, I think they're getting lost in the conversation as we continue to see the call for more money, more money, more money, and no answer when we ask, how much? How much is enough? Yep. No, that's right. And 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 Randa, I don't know if you know, but like I went from kindergarten to second grade, I went to a private school, third grade to sixth grade, I went to a public school, and then seventh grade through twelfth grade, I went to homeschool. So kind of went through the big three. And that was from a low-income family. I mean, the only reason why I was able to do that is because my grandparents helped us out and they didn't have a lot of money either, but that was something they really felt was important for me at the time. And you know, whenever I'm thinking about this, it's really those lower income people who I think will benefit the most and who are being hurt the most given the situation that we have today, because they're oftentimes not the ones who who can afford to have these different opportunities, right? Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, one of the reasons I got involved in this effort years ago was to be able to serve students in those lower income minority special needs communities that are the most vulnerable, they are getting left behind. There's report after report that proves this. So absolutely, I mean, the first line of defense against a cycle of poverty is getting a great education. We see the school to prison pipeline. And so I'm very passionate about making sure we go into those inner city communities and give those parents a lifeline. Right here in Texas, we have over 100,000 students who are on a charter school wait list. 100,000 students who are desperate for another option, but maybe their family cannot afford private school tuition. Perhaps it's a single mom and she can't homeschool. She doesn't have that built-in support network. So we've got to do something different. And again, I believe when we put the power in the hands of the parents and we put the funding in the hands of the parents, they're going to choose what's best for their kids. I believe that parents know best. I believe that government-run systems are not the solution. For far too long, we've been reliant on this government monopoly, and we're not seeing the outcomes. The United States of America continues to fall behind. Our students are not proficient in math and reading. They're not critical thinkers. And instead of being taught reading and writing and math and history, they're being taught gobbledygook about having multiple genders. And there's no truth in education anymore. So, you know, I could go down a whole rabbit hole of why I think we got to get government out of education. But fundamentally, it's about doing what's best for kids. Yep. Amen. You know, I think, you know, the last few minutes that we have here, maybe we could talk a little bit more about like the specifics of how this would work. I mean, in in Texas right now, we're spending about $14,000 per student 
Some of that's bloated because of a lot of money during COVID. And so maybe it's a little bit less, but regardless, about $14,000 now. And the, the way, at least in Texas, it works is you have these school finance formulas that determine that amount based on average daily attendance. Some of that gets funded by property, local property taxes. Some of it gets funded by the state through mostly sales taxes that dominates here in Texas. And when you put all that money together, it's kind of like a bucket. Here's the $14,000. Here's how much money is coming in for property taxes. If the bucket is overrun with property taxes, then we take it and we put it to other buckets across the state. That's our Robinhood system that we have here. Now, out of that, let's say $14,000, is the idea in order to have universal school choice to use every one of those dollars? Or is it something else? Um, that, that that would be kind of the gold standard of what's working on with the education savings accounts. Yeah, it's really going to depend on how the bill is written. I know that there's conversations often in the past few sessions about keeping local property tax dollars local. Um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you and say, for me, if it's about funding the student, then those are tax dollars that have been allocated for that student, local, state, whatever it is, I believe that it should go with the student. And the the idea that our schools are going to shut down if we have school choice, that inherently is making the argument that the parents want another option. If they're going to leave when given a choice, and that's going to cause your school to have to reevaluate your budget, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that school needs to reevaluate, cut cost, simplify, streamline, decrease the size of the classroom so that more teachers can serve more students. So I'm a big fan of making it about the dollars following the child. The funding formula is very complicated in Texas. As you mentioned, we have a very tedious school finance system. I think the more we streamline it and focus it on an education savings account, the better. Those dollars go into an account that is managed by the parent. It's overseen, administered, and held accountable by the comptroller of Texas. So again, these dollars have to be spent on things that are approved educational expenses. I mentioned that list that I saw from West Virginia. Those are all individuals, schools, vendors that have gone through a pretty tedious process to get on that list. You have to be a, a registered with the, you know, you have to have a tax ID. You can't just be, hey, Vance, I want you to teach my kid economics. Here's $500. It just doesn't work that way. You have to be approved. So that means things like tutoring companies, speech therapist, equine therapy for students with, you know, our gross motor skills that they're struggling with. You would be amazed at some of the things, innovative ways that we can serve those students. Private schools, um, you know, online curriculum, those types of things that really when you build them together can make a very impressive education for our students. And again, focusing on what's best for the student is, is really what's at the heart of this. But again, it is administered by the comptroller, dollars follow the child, managed by the parents, and only used on approved educational expenses. Yeah. What do you usually say to those who um, say, well, what about accountability? Right. How are we going to hold these dollars that are taxpayer dollars? How are we going to hold these institutions accountable when we have an education savings account system in place? I think there's two answers. First and foremost, philosophically, I say parents are the ultimate accountability. I trust parents. If their kids are not performing, they want to send them to a different school or a different provider or try a different online learning platform or a different curriculum. Guess what? They have that freedom. Right now, if their school is not working, they could be stuck. And even the best public school is not the right fit for every child. So the ultimate accountability is with the parents. That's philosophically. Now, mechanically, there are accountability measures in place. Again, you have to be an approved educational provider or an approved educational expense. So there's checks and balances there. There will likely be some sort of annual, like submit the receipts or very similar in the way that you would use a health savings account, right? You can't go use your HSA to buy a new color printer, but you can use it to buy approved health related items, 
uh, expenses, et cetera. So we've seen this happen in other industries, right? It's just time for education to catch up. And I would say that in a lot of ways, education savings accounts are what Uber was to the taxi cartel, right? All of a sudden you insert uh, choice and competition and you see the monopoly crumble. And I think that's exactly what has potential to happen here. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and I think the other thing too, is that education savings accounts breaks it, the connection between government, the payment, the, the ones who's paying with, with government, having the, the distribution of those dollars with the institution, because it's giving it to the parent instead, which allows for that accountability to happen. And it also means that because I've, I've heard a lot from homeschoolers who are really concerned about the government regulating and them having to fill out documents and everything else. And at the end of the day, you also don't have to apply for the education savings account, right? Absolutely. It's an opt-in program. I mean, look, I'm going to be the first in line if this type of program causes any government intervention or burdens or regulations on homeschooling families, because ultimately I believe in educational freedom. I'm trying to get the government out of the way. These are your tax dollars. These are your children and you know what's best. So for my friends in the homeschool community who I'm very close with, I'm often having these conversations about, look, first of all, you don't have to participate. Second of all, if you do participate and you feel like it becomes too burdensome, you're able to opt right back out of this program. And then third of all, you know, the the final point here is that these dollars are your dollars. Mm -hmm. You are paying into this system. You are paying your taxes for the government to then send it to a school that your kids are not even using. So reclaim that amount of money, reclaim that freedom to say, these are my dollars. These are my children hands off the government. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, one thing I like to say is uh, taxation is theft, right? So they're stealing our money any already. So why not give it back to us to let us use it how we see fit? And it's for our kids. It's for empowering kids and, and teachers will benefit. Parents will benefit. I've done some economic studies. The economy benefits because you have increases in human capital and labor. I mean, there's so many benefits. So what we could see by freeing up, that's something that's so essential to our lives. I mean, the other big one that we need to free up to, Brandon, is, is healthcare, right? That's a whole other issue that we need to talk about. About, that I think we'll have a lot more benefits, but we'll have benefits as well. But again, with education, it's just going to be so important. Um, and, and then kind of wrapping up here is, is the pushback seems to be a lot from our more rural, uh, conservative, rural Republican friends. And I think some of them may be coming on board, and we've seen this in other states. But but why is that? Why, why are they pushing back so much? Yeah, you know, the Heritage Foundation just put out an amazing study that showed the connection between school choice in rural communities and increase of opportunities, increase of new options. And so I think for a long time, there's been this misnomer that, um, you know, if we have school choice in rural communities, it's going to cause the students to flee. And then they also say, well, we shouldn't have school choice in rural communities because our children don't have any other options. So I don't know, which one is it? Like, is it going to ruin your schools or is it not going to serve your students because there's no other option. And so I think that they're just looking for any scapegoat, to be honest. You know, in a lot of these rural communities, again, going back to where the dollars go, they go into the superintendent's pocket. These superintendents are trained by the Texas Association of School Boards, the AFT here in Texas, on how to fight mean Mr. Voucher. So they are 
you know, well-armed, they are taxpayer-funded lobbyists that can go to the Capitol and spend all day talking to their rural members. They can shore up the support of their educators in these rural communities by using fear tactics that tell them you're going to lose your job. This is going to dismantle public education. This is going to cause Friday night lights to be canceled, right? And so they use all these scare tactics and these scapegoats for them to make it seem like this is the worst thing that could ever happen. But if you pay attention to the messaging, it's only the worst thing that's going to happen to the system. They don't talk about what's going to happen to the kid, right? They don't talk about what's going to happen to the families who otherwise feel stuck in this school. And oftentimes it's going to be those families who are, again, in the middle looking for another option, but say, maybe it's okay because it was okay for me. Guess what? This is going to allow them to explore other options. And if there's not another option, the market will respond. I guarantee you there'll be an innovative educator who leaves the system to start her own company and serve students. Yeah, that's right. Markets work, governments don't, you know? Um, so as we're wrapping up here, uh, Randon, what else would you like to share with the audience um, for, for our last words here? Yeah, you got it. You know, I mean, ultimately parents know best and we trust parents to make the best decision as it comes to their child's education. We have to stop thinking about education as the, you know, 21st century or even 20th century, right? Old way of doing things. We have an opportunity to really innovate, innovate, and educate our students in a really exciting way that allows them to meet their individual needs. And I believe that that is only possible through an education savings account. Yep. I agree, Randon. It's uh, been a pleasure having you on the Life People Prosper Show. God bless you and your family. Keep doing great things. And I look forward to having you know school choice and education savings accounts here in Texas soon. Uh, so thank you so much. Yeah, thanks and, for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, and for the audience, if you enjoyed this show, please give us a five-star rating. You can find the show notes at vancegin.com or vancegin.substack.com. And I hope that you have a blessed day. Let people prosper. <laughs>